Yo, hello, welcome to episode 166. We're back. Herpetological Highlights, the podcast about reptiles and amphibians and the science of all their behaviours, their conservation, all that fun stuff. And I'm Tom Major. Co-hosting with me is Ben Marshall, who I've missed terribly. We haven't done a podcast, hadn't seen his face for well over a month. Far too long to go without seeing Ben. How's it going, mate? It's not bad. It's not bad. I'm doing all right. Good stuff. Yeah, well, we kind of had like a bit of a busy period for both of us. So we decided that rather than sort of doing it by halves, we'd just take a little break from the podcast just for a month or so. Well, it's done. We're back. I've moved house in that time. I've been furiously working full time as a postdoctoral researcher and writing a PhD in the evenings and weekends, which has been pretty intense. But it's going well. It's going well. L- lots of progress has been made. Haven't been lollygagging, which is good. It's always a risk. So yeah, just things are good. And Ben, you've been in America? Yeah, I've been bouncing back and forth between here and the States. I'll be back there relatively soon. But uh, heading towards a little bit more stability where uh, podcasting recording can be easier. been helping out with uh, my partner's research, which has been fun and cool and not at all reptile related, but uh, a nice refresher. It's birds, but you like birds, don't you? I do you? like so birds. It's probably yeah, birds not are that right. big of a hardship. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, really, they are reptiles, aren't they? Oh, God. Are they? I don't know. Yeah? Yeah, just They're squint. They're archosaurs. Reptiles. Shave them. Yeah. Yeah? Shave the bird and then squint a little bit. You've got yourself a reptile. Perfect. Well, it's been a productive month anyway, but it is good to be back. And we're coming back. We've got an episode about rattlesnakes, actually, which is pretty cool, about rattlesnakes being social creatures and rattlesnakes feeling a bit stressed out. Hopefully not too stressed out. But um, yeah, let's introduce this paper. So this one's by Martin Fox Putman and Hayes, 2023. Social security. Can rattlesnakes reduce acute stress through social buffering? Published in Frontiers in Ethology. Frontiers in ethology, I've never heard of it. No, but... Frontiers, I mean, ever pushing that frontier to make a new journal for an ever more smaller <laughs> niche of science. <laughs> yeah, frontiers in making absurd amounts of money from scientists. Yeah, so this one's about social buffering. And social buffering is this idea that being with companions can help you feel less stressed during events which would otherwise be quite stressful. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, uh, social buffering comes to mind. I wouldn't watch a scary film by myself. Oh. Would you do that? Uh, yeah. Some kind of sicko masochist? Yes. Would you? Would you? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a big fan of horror movies. I absolutely would. That's crazy. I mean, I have, but they're really way more scary, I think. I think having someone in the room to sort of buffer that stress can be quite beneficial. I think it depends who's in the room with you, to be honest. If you've got some kind of erratic wild person who sort of resembles you know the main enemy in the yes. horror that could be worse it could but i think that's unlikely be. yeah or, or I, mean, uh, I remember watching uh it in the cinema and uh they had renegade clowns wandering around the cinema <laughs> oh my god <laughs> oh that'd be horrible mm-hmm. oh god situations like that oh yeah i don't scary know clowning gonna social buff you no way. Okay, well, yeah. But yeah, I certainly wouldn't watch a horror film by myself because like, it's nice to be able to break the tension and be like, <laughs> you know, it's less scary. Make a little silly joke, although it can also ruin it. But anyway, social buffering is well documented in highly social animals, such as humans, obviously, but also fishes, birds, mammals, non-human primates. And there's even a single invertebrate group, invertebrate group that do this social buffering, termites. And 
I read that in his paper and I was like, what? How can termites do social buffering? So I went and read the paper and it's pretty cool, actually. Essentially, there's these termites and they had this big enclosure and they had two kinds of termites. So there's like two termite nests coexisting in like a big enclosure. And when there was another species of termite present, the worker termites, so the termites that do all the jobs, spent more time doing defensive behaviours, like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they'd vibrate when they sensed an enemy. And because of that, they spent less time feeding. And so they actually survived less time and grew less. But when they had even just like one soldier termite in there, keeping them company, it meant that they spent way more time feeding, spent way less time emotionally vibrating because they're scared of the other yep, ones. Yep. And so... What was really cool, though, is that there was this massively good effect of having this one soldier in there. But if you increase the numbers of soldiers to like defend, you'd think they'd defend them more effectively. It didn't actually increase their growth rates or their survival time. So what they think is that beyond the soldiers actually physically protecting the termites, they also like kind of emotionally reassure them that everything's OK and stop them <laughs> wasting time doing other stuff. Yeah, yeah. Which is really cool. So, yeah, social buffering, even in invertebrates, but mostly we know it from more sort of what you would consider to be uh, social intelligent animals although i suppose maybe you can't get more social than a eusocial insect that's like hyper sociality yeah that's something else but uh, like society scale and it's the opposite of what we think about when we think of snakes don't we you think you're you're lone foraging individuals with limited sociality outside of i mean they bring up some nice examples in the introduction of where social connections and sort of well, just general sociality in snakes has been observed and a lot of it is rattlesnake focused which makes sense rattlesnakes have seen a lot of research done some of it's connected to like joint sheltering sites and things along those lines some of it's keeping uh, young close to mother rattlesnake while they're younger, until they're first shed. What's the other highlight? Oh, aggregation. Denning and overwintering. The yeah. denning site stuff. So they all gather together in the winter. Yeah, and as an extension to that, they th know that the juvenile snakes, probably the adults as well, but they can follow chemical trails of the other bigger snakes to right. the overwintering locations, which is something that people used to talk about all the time as a thing which probably happened, and now there are papers detailing that. So, yeah. Yes, and they can recognise kin. That's the other one, isn't it? They can recognise kin yeah. over non-kin snakes. Yeah, there was that study that we did ages ago where they like disproportionately hang out with other snakes they're exactly. related to, yeah. even if you even if you control for like the availability of the related yeah. snakes. So, yeah, but like all of those examples are in pit vipers. Most, as you say, are in rattlesnakes specifically. There was that one, wasn't there, of the python looking after the babies as well, the African rock python. So mm -hmm. it's probably the case that there are other species. Oh, and like definitely. you say, you said, yeah, I suppose um, the overwintering thing's probably more like a, you know, northern temperate, or southern yeah, thing because yeah. you need the temperate climate. But I'm sure there are lots and lots of pit vipers that are doing social stuff that just aren't as well studied because they don't live in America or Europe where most of the studying goes on. But yeah, so there are social elements to the lives of rattlesnakes and they kind of wanted to extend on that knowledge of the sociality of rattlesnakes by doing an experiment to see whether or not rattlesnakes demonstrated this social buffering whether or not stressful events were less stressful to rattlesnakes if they had a sort of colleague alongside them and they were doing this experiment with a species called the southern pacific rattlesnake which is Cratalus helleri helleri and this is a snake from California, USA, but also Baja, California in Mexico. 
classic sort of dark looking rattlesnake, quite a beautiful creature. And they had 25 of these Southern Pacific rattlesnakes and they were doing this experiment where they'd put them in a bucket and in the bucket with the snake would either be nothing or it would have a rope or it would have another rattlesnake. And then they put electrodes on the snake to measure its heart rate. And they first leave it sort of 20 minutes to calm down in the bucket. And then they have these two pipes that are sort of like suspended on ropes. And the pipes come down and like bang the bucket. Yeah. And it's like a consistent it's- bang because they're <laughs> suspended on ropes. It's this semi-automated put snake in bucket, hit bucket. Yeah, basically. And so the idea behind that is obviously if you're in a bucket that gets whomped with a pipe, you're going to be a little bit startled and so what they do is they record the change in the heart rate after they bash the bucket and how long it takes to get back to calm heart rate and see whether or not having a friend or just a rope make the snakes seem less frightened and they also did some stuff with their um rattling time didn't they to see if they were rattling for similar amounts of time or more or less time when they had a sort of friend there and that was the point of the experiment to see whether or not they were appearing less stressed and, well, we should say what, what happened, really, I guess. Yeah, I think it's quite a simple, elegant experiment as it goes, because it's just, okay, you've got heart rate. How is that affected by these three different scenarios of, of nothing, rope, or social support snake? <laughs> and, uh, I mean, long story short, is it seems like there is social buffering going on. The, the ones yeah, with yeah. the companion snake tended to have less of a change in heart rate yep yeah they called it a subdued cardiac response yes <laughs> this acute stressful situation somebody's bashing the bucket you're in if you've got a mate there it's not as bad it doesn't seem as bad and um they also looked to see the rattling component of the sort of defensive response and this also seemed to be reduced but this was reduced either by the presence of a conspecific or the inanimate rope and so the snakes that had the other snake or the rope were rattling less than the ones that didn't have anything in there. And their authors of this paper think that the snakes might have felt a bit more hidden and a bit less vulnerable because they had something yes. touching them for cover, yeah. even if it was just a rope. You know, snakes like to be at least partially disguised under stuff a lot of the time. You yeah. know, rattlesnakes will many times sit out in the open for sure. But if there's like a little bit of leaf litter touching them or like they're like semi-concealed under a plant or a rock, they're probably going to feel more at ease and less exposed. And they think that that might be the reason why they're less likely to rattle if there's a conspecific or an inanimate object. Of course, it could also just be an extension of this um, social buffering where they just feel a little bit more confident because they've got a friend there. They don't need to rattle quite so much. But obviously, you know, it's cool to find out. It's kind of... I always like it when, and we talk about this all the time, but when you realise or when you discover that a snake particularly has some kind of really relatable emotional response yes. to something, it's like yes. less frightened because it's got a mate. Like, totally get that. Like, that, that's exactly how we'd probably feel if we were in a bucket getting bashed. If you were there, I'd probably feel a little bit reassured. Right. You know, there's, there's two of us to take on the bucket basher rather than just one. And, you know, exactly what the rattlesnake, how the rattlesnake perceives that is kind of a bit of a mystery. But all we know is that they are calmer in the process when there's a a sort of colleague nearby. And the authors talk about the kind of um, ramifications of this. So, you know, we talk a lot about translocation, which is where snakes and other animals are caught up and moved either because they're deemed to be a nuisance because they're venomous and they're in someone's garden or because there's development going on and they need to go and live somewhere else or they're going to be killed by a bulldozer and 
they authors talk about how if you could reduce stress during translocation, perhaps by either housing snakes together just before they're translocated or even maybe through the process. Um, and this could potentially increase the likelihood of translocation success, particularly if you're taking snakes as a team, you know, maybe they already know each other, taking them somewhere, they might arrive at a new place and feel a little bit more at ease. Similarly, they talk about where you're breeding snakes for conservation purposes. Maybe you're going to have a bit of better success if you house them together in groups or even in pairs that, or even, well, obviously you need them in pairs for them to breed, but maybe it would also be beneficial to have other individuals in there to try and reduce the stress of being in captivity or whatever else might be stressing them out. So there's some kind of interesting potential avenues for that. And I think that is also going to be something which people could study in the future, you know, are captive snakes happier when they're kept in particular types of groups or whether they're if they're kept with yeah. kin or whatever it might yeah. be so yeah lots more f- f- potentially fruitful avenues for research coming out of this i think the other sort of the other thing they looked at that we haven't touched on is they had snakes from do- two different areas they had these sort of montane higher up snakes that were in less human disturbed sort of areas that's a sort of more rural more remote uh, sort of area, and he had these lowland snakes that they had pulled from areas that had experienced a lot more, a lot more contact with humans. And there was a difference in, not necessarily the response. They both showed this social buffering, so it does look like social buffering is something that these rattlesnakes are experiencing no matter where they are. But the ones in the montane areas, or from the montane areas, I should say, had a much more sort of differential uh, change from their baseline. Uh, heart rate to their elevated stressed heart rate it was a lot more sort of responsive to the stress in that way whereas the lowland ones tended to have higher baselines and also a reduced response when stressed so it's almost as if the lowland ones were more subdued overall but had a higher baseline of stress which when you think other studies we sort of covered on the podcast in the there have been many that we've talked about with sort of chronic stress or things becoming less responsive to disturbances or sudden like perturbations and instead just sitting at this sort of chronically stressed level for long periods of time. And it wouldn't be surprising if these snakes are exhibiting something similar to that. It's just in this study, they've done it via heart rate rather than, you know, hormone levels or something like that, that we usually see in these studies. It does you know, to tie this back to your translocation point is potentially not all areas are equal. And also the sort of history of that snake might modify how it responds to a translocation or something along those lines if it's lived its life in an area where it's had to sort of be stressed all the time. (laughs) It might not respond the same as a snake that has lived in a different area and vice versa. You know, these two snakes would react differently to being handled for example, certainly heart rate wise. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's something interesting going on there. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I really like that. They thought about that. I thought that was a clever angle to take, to have the sort of presence of mind to even realize that there's a likelihood that montane snakes might have a different suite of experiences. Yeah. I thought it was quite cool. It is worth noting that their snakes were nuisance in quotation snakes. So they were collected by, snake removal or snake translocation services so the whole sample could be skewed towards those sort of braver snakes and those that have become more tolerant of human disturbance potentially yeah 
Just worth noting. Yeah, so evidence of social buffering Definitely. in a snake. They're more comfortable in the presence of a teammate, which is just, yeah, just kind of cool, really. Yeah, have you got anything else on the uh, social rattlesnakes? No, I don't think so. I, I just love the sort of elegance of this study. Just little heart rate monitors on snakes, see how they react before, after yeah. controls. Lovely. It was really easy to read and it was a really nice one. All right, let's move on from a species of snake that likes a friend to a brand new species of snake that we don't know anything about the sociality of. All right, so here we got a paper by Nankivel. Marianne, Bush and Hutchinson, 2023. Whip it into shape. Revision of the Demancia Samophis complex with the description of a new species from Central Australia. Published in Zoo Taxa. Brand new species. Saw this one doing the rounds on social media and it was just a cool, cool, cool snake. So Right from the middle of Australia. Yeah. Right in the middle. The, it's the centre. And so, yeah, emailed the lead author, James Nankavell kind enough to send us the paper so thank you very much and yeah just um you said it is from central australia isn't it mm -hmm. it's got really like big distribution you, you look at the map and yeah i mean australia's like, big you know, and it's covering like the middle third yeah yeah i mean yeah alice springs is kind of i guess you could say the sort of well it's sort of the northern part of the range it goes all the way down to the south coast and yep. then all the way up halfway to the sort of tippity top from Alice Springs. So yeah, it covers, the distribution covers probably about a third of Australia, isn't it? Almost, quite yeah. quite big. Yeah. Depending on how the, the middle's infilled, of course. Yes, yes. But yeah, they've got a brand new species here. What have they called it? And what does it look like? Cyanochasm. Cyanochasm. Demancia cyanochasm which is mm -hmm. pretty damn cool what does that mean so front half is blue the latter half is meaning Cyan. space or expanse so they're saying it's alluding to the bluish gray anterior body color of this species and reference to its distribution filling the geographic space between uh words famophis and reticulata and those are the other two species mm -hmm. of demancia that are on either side of it yeah really cool really cool and it is a beautiful creature where are the pictures of it? Ah. Uh, figure nine. You're looking at page yeah. 20. Yeah, because there's like a lot of other pictures of other species that are similar. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very cool. Looks a bit like a Montpellier snake, uh, which is like this massive um, European colubrid species. But presumably, this is a non-venomous snake, isn't it? Wait. Is it venomous? Well, it's an elapid. Yeah, it is, isn't it? But it doesn't mention the venom anywhere. But yeah, presumably it is, it is venomous. It's in Australia, it's a lapid. So yeah, it's just sort of convergently evolved to look like a Montpellier snake. They can't be a close relative. But yeah, really cool looking snake. It's sort of got a tan coloured head, massive eyes. And then the front half's sort of grey. And then as it gets towards the tail, it becomes this oh. sort of like rusty, orangey, goldy red colour. Yeah, it's a beautiful, it's very... beautiful silver grey. It's, uh, I would say, chainmail-like. With the sort of darker interstitial cut edge of the scale and skin. Yeah. And it's got a bit of pale round the eye, but a sort of dark, almost like teardrop 
upside down teardrop coming down. Really, really nice. Really elegant looking. But apparently if you're fortunate enough to live in the Western Australian Goldfields or Alice Springs, it frequently visits town gardens and it's often caught by interested herpetologists. So if you live in those areas, you might go in your garden and it's known for occupying areas around human dwellings, abandoned ruins, but it also likes quite a sort of variety of habitats. It's a bit of a generalist species, um, semi-arid, arid sand loam stony soils rocky hills yeah any kind of vegetation is pretty much fine for it as well it's not too fast so yeah it just looks like it's a sort of very active visual predator that can do a range of different stuff massive broad range across australia and um which is good yeah. wide distribution generalist seems to tolerate a lot of disturbance and different habitats it makes a nice change i feel like so many of the species are by week <laughs> a tiny distribution super vulnerable this is one that might actually be doing all right yeah yeah they kind of just set out to better understand the kind of um relationships between these groups of snakes and yeah they've just basically discovered that one of them was in fact a you know justifiably different species because it was um significantly different genetically and you look at the phylogeny and yeah it's split off from demancia reticulata Going back, well, it's not actually a timed phylogeny, is it? But yeah, it does look justifiably different than the other sort of two species that are um, closely related to it. Oh, there's quite a few actually. What we're talking about, there's loads of species that are closely related to it. But yeah, looking at the phylogeny, these all grouped together. These ones in the central part of Australia. So yeah, brand new species. Just not you just wouldn't expect a like a species that's so like widespread and well known that people are finding their gardens to kind of be described as a new species but yeah that's what happens when you have genetic advances and all that fun stuff yeah so demancia cyanochasm awesome name too no it's cyanochasma cyanochasma mm-hmm. we've been saying cyanochasm yeah it's because i can't read i'm, I'm <laughs> sorry, like, I'm sorry you but it. you know that that job's <laughs> usually usually yours pass it off to me of course it's going to be a blunder you should have known better. <laughs> Just the, the paper we got sent had, it was like, it was a series of pictures. It had no text you could search. So without a search function, I was just floundering. Luckily, you were there to pick up the pieces. The only problem was you can't read. Yeah, I stuck <laughs> the pieces back together in the wrong order and upside down. <laughs> Look, yeah, you have so many strengths, Ben. I'm glad you have that one weakness. <laughs> but yeah, so Dem- I'm not glad. Demancia cyanochasma is the name of the snake. Ignore what we said previously. Demancia cyanochasma. But yeah, very cool. The blue chasm. Uh, yeah. I think that's about it, isn't it, really, for this discussion of the new species? Have you got any other business? Yeah, I would like to apologise for my ignorance about frog and toad of friends. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a well-known children's book. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm glad you came yeah. clean on that one. It's beautifully illustrated. It's wonderful. Yeah, because you said frogs and toads are best friends, right? And then it was assumed that you knew about the book. Yeah, and that was just complete no. But now I do. And it's been rectified. I I understand the reference I made accidentally. You've read the book, have you? No. Oh, that's poor. Never mind. (laughs) No, it's fine. (laughs) You at least took the time. I'll go there one day. Cool. Well, any other business-wise, we've got a new patron, uh, Jörg Schneider. So thank you very much, Jörg. 
And yeah, big up thanks to all the other patrons as well. You guys are the best. And we paused the patron payments while we were taking a break, but they're resuming this month. So, um, well, they, they were paused for August, so they'll resume in September. But yeah, if you want to become a Patreon and support the podcast, you can at patreon.com slash highlights. Yeah, I don't think we've got much else to say. I think that's pretty much it. So if you want to get in touch with us, you can. If you want to ask questions or if we've made a glaring error of discussing your work herphighlights at gmail.com we're on social media and I think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening yeah thanks for listening 